We're going to go uh, into a passage, just for a one-off, into John's Gospel. Um, looking at this story of when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And you must understand, these are some of the last hours before Jesus was crucified. There's a few chapters in John's Gospel where John records the evening and the dialogue of what was going on that night before Jesus was betrayed and handed over to the Romans to be crucified. So when you're coming to this, these pages, there's such a, a sense of like you're walking on holy ground because Christ is pouring out his heart. He's leaving almost like final words, final thoughts, final priorities with the men who he had trained for ministry, the 12 disciples, the apostles. So these are very incredibly important moments in the life and ministry of Jesus before he went to the cross to be executed for us, before he went to the cross to be put to death for our sins. And I want to read to you one of his last acts, the story of when he washed his disciples' feet. John 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus drew, so he knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. He knew his death was imminent. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it round his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he'd washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does Take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me, the one who sent, receives the one who sent me. Well, friends, we are coming to a place where we're, we're looking at, at Jesus this morning and um, the extraordinary love for us, partly because, well, entirely because our calling as a church And your calling as an individual, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, is to want to be more like him. 
Part of the reason we started this church was because we wanted a church that would be radical, be countercultural, and that would become something important for this city. Um, the word radical means to go back to the roots. And churches that seek to go back to the roots want to look at Jesus. They want to look at what the New Testament says a church needs to be. And they want to walk in radical discipleship to uh, the calling that's upon us. When churches lose their way, when they forget what it means to be like Jesus, they become, they become pointless. But the more radical you become, the more like Christ you become, the more countercultural we also become. Because everything we are and everything we do begins to fly in the face of the prevailing culture of the city that we're in. What do you think of when you think of what London's about? What are the first thoughts that come to mind when you think about what defines this city? Church, in many ways, is meant to be an alternative community within this larger community of London, an alternative city within the great city of London, a counterculture. And the more different that we are, the more important our work becomes, the more important our message to the world is. And this is never more true than when you're looking at the central element, the heart, the essence of the Christian life, which is the call to walk in love. You must realize that when Jesus was going to the cross, as he would do in a few hours from this moment, he went in love. He went to give his life voluntarily for us in love. And even as he engages in this final act of washing his disciples' feet before he goes there, serving them before he now serves them by pouring out his blood on the cross, he does so in love. It's there in the first verse where it says, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end, and then he starts washing their feet. I think the church is most radical, most countercultural, when we seek to embody the love that Jesus has shown towards us. Now, I know if you're maybe not a Christian, uh, what I've said may not make much sense to you, because you think, actually, there's nothing particularly radical about the message of love. In fact, it's a very popular message. Everywhere you go, people uh, speak about love and uh, free love and and love the idea of us being a, a society that gets along, that is a community, and all these kinds of things. But what I'm hoping to show you from this passage is how extraordinarily different the love of Jesus is towards us and the love that he wants the church to embody, how different it is from the kind of love that you'll experience in the world, from the kind of love that you'll have outside of the community of, of, of Christ. There is love in this world. I'm not, I'm not denying that. But there was something profoundly unique about the love of Christ. That's what I want to show you today, um, looking at this. And I want to tell you three things. I want to tell you that love is easy when you're doing it wrong. Love is hard when you're doing it right. And love is impossible without the gospel. Love is easy when you're doing it wrong. It's hard when you're doing it right. And it's impossible without the gospel. I'm trying to cut away at your preconceptions of what love is, what the church is, uh, and get you back to what Christ defines love to be so that you can realize that this is only possible with his help. Love is easy then when you're doing it wrong, the first thing. It's easy when you're doing it wrong. A lot of people think that um, 
Because love is the essence of the Christian message, you know, Jesus said you can, you can encapsulate all of the Old Testament laws, and there were like 631, I think, laws in the Old Testament, specific instructions. You can encapsulate them all in just two commands, he said, to love God and to love others. But whilst that is simple, simple does not necessarily mean easy, Right? Some of you have been writing exams and essays recently. You know that the aim is to understand something well enough that you can articulate it simply. The more complex your work becomes, it's because you don't understand it at all, right? You're sat there just blah, blah, just waffling on in your exams, pretending, blagging. Well, it's the same when it comes to ethics. It sounds simple, but only because it is profoundly difficult. And I want to, to emphasize that by helping you to see just how much we get this wrong, this message of love, that we get it wrong in a few ways. We get it wrong, firstly, when for, lo- for us, love is just loving people who are just like us. Loving people who are just like us. Um, if you just w- were to walk around the city by foot, from neighborhood to neighborhood, one of the things you would quickly perceive is that London is a very tribal city. Um, there are all kinds of tribes represented in localities all across this, this city. You've got, um, you have racial boundaries from borough to borough and from neighborhood to neighborhood, and even just from street to street, don't you? Wealth bar- boundaries. So you can go, you go to Chelsea, and there's a certain type in Chelsea, isn't there? I always feel like people just look better there. They just, they're better looking. And I'm like, why do you all look so good? Well, I have no idea. It could be plastic surgery or the rest of it. Um, <laughs> You go to Brixton, and there's, a, there's, an, there's another tribe there, isn't there? You go to Shoreditch, there's another tribe there. You walk in the city on a Monday morning, there's another tribe there. You go to Camden, there's another tribe there. Everywhere you go across London, there are tribes. We naturally, we naturally but by nature, as humans, we, we are drawn and attracted to a tribal mentality, to loving people who are just like us. And why do you love people who are just like you? Well, because you love yourself. The reason why you like people who are like you is because they're like you. And you're great. So this is why, why we're drawn to people who are just like us. But when Jesus called the church to exist, birthed it, what he des- described and articulated and what the New Testament describes in terms of the love that existed in the church is not a tribal love. In fact, it's a love that crosses over all kinds of boundaries, the natural boundaries that make us siloed into different people groups. It, cr- it crashes across racial boundaries. It crashes across um, social hierarchy boundaries. It crashes across age boundaries. So that you should find, when you go to a church that has matured and grown in discipleship and love for Jesus, you should find your Chelsea mom sat next to the youth from Brixton and the banker in the city sat next to the artist from Camden, breaking bread together, as we're going to do at the end, drinking wine together in communion, saying, we are one family in Christ Jesus. You may be voting Labour, you may be voting Tory, you may be voting UKIP, you may be voting Lib Dem, whatever it is you're voting, but you can sit down together and say, we are one tribe in Christ. Love is easy when you're doing it wrong because we tend to love people who are just like us. That's the first thing. Here's another way we get it wrong. We get it wrong when truth and love are separated. When truth and love are separated. Now I know the message of love is quite dominant in the wider culture. But part of the reason for that is because the love that we see in the world is a love that's been separated from truth. What do I mean? 
I mean that the way people understand love today is that, well, it revolves around the central ethic of what it means to be human. These days, people understand that the most important thing about you is that you be authentic to who you are. And so you say, to love me means that you must love me as I am. You must be on my side. You must help me to flourish into the person that I am meant to be. So love in our culture, in our society, means affirming you, affirming your choices, affirming your identity the way you choose to live your life. In the Bible, love doesn't look like that because love is a much grittier reality. It means loving people enough to help them change to become more like Jesus. Loving people enough that you will speak the truth to them in love. Loving people enough that holiness is married to love so that in the community of Jesus, we don't just have a bunch of individuals all going their own way, trying to be authentic to who they think they are and find themselves. Rather, you have a community of individuals drawn together around the central person of Jesus Christ, wanting to be more like him and helping one another to grow in Christ-likeness. Love is easy when you separate love and truth, when all you're doing is just patting people on the back and affirming them in who they want to be. Love is much harder when you're called to be a community that shapes one another into Christ-likeness and molds one another. Here's a third way we do it wrong. We do it wrong when love is just a purely duty and drudgery, just an action. There was a, a Christian band in the 90s who used to, called DC Talk. Some of the older ones of you know who I'm talking about, right? Um, they used to sing a song that goes, love, love as a verb. I said it was like, love, love as a verb, like that. <laughs> and um, Obviously, I understand what they mean. I think they're right in a certain sense. They're right when it comes to um, some, love is meaningless if it's just a sentimentality. But the flip side to that is love is also meaningless if all it is is just doing the right thing. When Paul wrote that famous passage that's read at weddings, uh, where he you know, says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And he, a little bit further down, he says, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, which presumably we'd all agree is one of the most profoundly selfless loving acts you can do. He says, it's possible that I can do the right thing without a heart of love engaged. That's what religion looks like. Religion is, is just jumping through the hoops, just obeying the laws, just ticking the right boxes and hoping that God will be pleased with you. But the gospel, the New Testament, is much more profoundly difficult than that because it doesn't just require that you do the right thing, it requires that your heart be transformed, that not only you give all you possess to the poor, but you do it with a heart of affection and love. Christians like to say, you know, just because I'm called to love you doesn't mean I, ha I have to like you. <laughs> I don't know how you can love someone without liking them. If I don't like you, then clearly I don't love you. And I know it's not always easy to love, but what I'm trying to help you to see is that love is easy when you're doing it wrong. When we just love people who are like us, we're tribal. When truth and love are separated, all we're doing is affirming your authentic choices about who you want to be. And when we're just loving as a matter of duty, when our hearts aren't really transformed and they aren't really changed. What you're seeing when we come to this passage, this brings us to the second thing, the love is hard when you're doing it right. 
what we see is that Christ's way of love is so much more profoundly costly than we've ever imagined love to be. Profoundly costly and difficult. If it were, if it were something that was just occurring naturally in nature, it's just the human tendency was to love the way Christ loved, then wouldn't we experience so much more beauty and harmony in society at large? Wouldn't election cycles be a, a moment where we all come together in excitement and dream about what Britain could be and celebrate as we go to the, the, the voting booths and, and, and ask each other, who did you vote for? Oh, well done. Well done. You voted differently for me, but I'm so happy that you have your choice and that we can agree together in love. Actually, it's just a time when we just sh- it just reveals the cracks and the pains and the differences in society. If love was natural, we'd have a much more loving world, wouldn't we? What I think you can see from the way Jesus loves is that to love like Christ is a supernatural thing. It requires a supernatural repentance, which in, in biblical terminology means to turn away from the sins of your own heart. To love like Jesus means actually you have to start killing sin in your own heart. Because there are, there are elements of your, who you are by nature that fight the call to love. So you might say, agree, academically that love is a good thing but when it comes to it you find it hard to love it requires a supernatural work of God in your heart and I'm going to show you that as we just walk through some of the ways that we can see why love is so hard in this passage I'm going to show you five things very briefly love is hard first of all because because of our self-centeredness first of all because of our self-centeredness I don't know if you look at yourself as a self-centered person, but um, I think probably the mantra of our age is that you can't love others until you love yourself. I was um, reading an article in that um, great philosophical journal, Cosmopolitan Magazine, (laughs) that... um, it was called, uh, the title of the article was Why I Married Myself. And it tells a story of a growing trend among um, people around the world and different parts of the world to, of, this, of going through these ceremonies where they marry themselves. And it, describes, it opens with the story of a woman um, on the rooftop of her Brooklyn apartment um, called Erica Anderson, and she's wearing a vintage-style white dress. And she starts saying the words with, with the witnesses around, I choose you today. Uh, the decor, it says, was an array of shot glasses with, emblazoned with the words, you and me, in each one. And uh, it tells a story of another, another one of these self-weddings where the vows go like this, I will never leave myself. <laughs> I know. How is that possible? I promise to ask for help when I'm suffering. I promise to look in the mirror every day and be grateful. I promise to give you the incredible life you long for. Now, I don't know what is underlying the urge to go down that road. But I think fundamentally it's the fruit of the cultural message that we live in that you must love yourself first and foremost. But hasn't that, isn't that what's given birth to 
the extraordinary explosion of consumerism, of greed, of self-indulgence, and of individualism and, and the breakdown of society, that everybody wants what's best for themselves. <laughs> the sickness at the heart of society is our self-love, I believe. Now, when you look at Jesus, look at how this passage opens. It says, you've got to understand this. Jesus' entire existence was on earth as a man was because he had a destiny to fulfill that he had. It, he was like an arrow shot from a bow from the moment he was born that was going to reach its target, and the target was giving his life on the cross for mankind. In other words, the entire purpose for his birth was a selfless existence. Not to fulfill his own ambitions, not to love himself, but to give his life for many. And this is how it opens. It says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. We're having an insight there. John's giving us an insight there to the fact that Jesus was fully aware, completely cognizant that his, where he was about to go, that he was going to go to the cross for mankind. It says in another gospel that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He had this determination he was going to pour out his life for others. How different from the self-interest and self-love that dominates our hearts. Love is hard when you're doing it right because it calls for selflessness. And only Christ has fully embodied that level of selfless sacrifice of giving himself. I don't know if you've ever heard of the concept of savior siblings. If you have a child who is... Um, terminally ill with a genetic problem such as or kidney failure or a, a disease like leukemia and they need a DNA match to find bone marrow or kidney transplant. It's medically possible to have a second child whose purpose in life is to be the donor for their older sibling, to give bone marrow, to give a kidney. It's ethically dubious but it's medically possible. Ethically, I mean, it raises all kinds of questions. How can you have a child whose whole existence is determined for them before they're born as being the savior for their older sibling? And yet, that is exactly what Jesus came to be for us. His love was selfless. Love is hard when you're doing it right because of our self-centeredness. Here's the second thing. Love is hard when you're doing it right because of our, our tendency towards non-commitment. I think that we have an epidemic, a massive epidemic of of commitment deficit in our, in our culture at large. How many of you grew up in homes where there was friction in the home and you weren't sure if your parents would stay together and for some of you they didn't stay together? How many of you start a relationship with someone with absolute certain confidence that if you're to marry them it will be for life? You heard this expression uh, of the dating apocalypse, how the world has changed so rapidly around this concept of dating even in the last few years. There's never been a faster or more rapid shift in people's mentalities around dating um, as has happened in the Tinder generation. Because suddenly, you're able to click a few buttons and order somebody like you order pizza. And yet, even when I was reading an article in Vanity Fair this time, There was one person who was, um, this is where I do my cultural research, guys. 
There was one person who um, lamented. I mean, she was actively engaged on, on the app and all the rest of it. She lamented that part of the problem is sometimes, she says, you catch feelings. People are afraid to fall in love and to be attracted and to drawn into something because they know that commitment has to work both ways and very few people are ready to commit to give their life for another person and to live selflessly towards that other person. And non-commitment is an epidemic in our age. Unfortunately, it seems to have affected a lot of churches as well. People do the whole church shopping thing, especially in London where there's so many churches and often you hop from one to the other to the other to find the best church where you can and find the best click and the best match and whatever you're looking for, I don't know. Now, look at Jesus. It says of him, again in verse 1, having loved his own who in the world, he loved them to the end. You will never find a more devoted source of love than Jesus Christ. Those of us who've come to know him as our Savior have experienced that his love is totally devoted to us even when we walk away from him. There are the stories he tells of his determination to love people even when they're far away. The story of the lost coin and the story of the lost sheep. A man has a hundred sheep, he says. If one goes astray, he says, he leaves the 99 behind. He goes after the one that's gone astray. He finds it, brings it back home, celebrates. The love of Jesus is like this. He loved them to the end. He has his affection set upon you when you are part of his family, and he will not let you go. You may have wandered away. You may have wandered astray for years. He loves you to the end. We find love hard because of our non-commitment, but Jesus demonstrates for us this total devotion. These guys were hardly even worthy of his love. No more than you or me. He loved them to the end. There's a third reason why we find love hard. Because of judgment and bitterness and anger. It's tough for me waking up this morning because um, 3.30 in the morning, one of my delightful neighbors woke up the whole family with the thumping bass of the music pulsating down the street through our window. And uh, the reason why it's particularly hard to get a sl- back to sleep was because I was ruminating. <laughs> I was thinking, how could I stop this party? Maybe a stone through the window or... Yeah, this is, this is my heart, guys. I'm just laying it bare for you. <laughs> I've, often, I've often fantasized about the air rifle just popping a pellet through just a... I don't know... I've probably said too much at this point, haven't I? <laughs> but the Lord, just, I just felt like preparing for this morning, even as I woke feeling annoyed um, at my lack of sleep, I was also challenged. Look at Jesus. It says, verse 2, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So there at the dinner table, Jesus knows that there's a scoundrel in their midst. A betrayer. You know when you've heard that someone's... I mean, this is pretty profoundly evil what Judas did. But you know when you've, you've, you've heard that one of your friends has been gossiping about you behind your back or whatever? If you see them again, do you feel like you can just 
love them and enjoy their company, or do you feel seething rage inside? If someone's betrayed you, how hard it is to love and to get past our anger and bitterness and judgment. But Jesus, do you know he's about to wash Judas' feet? The love of Jesus. Because, friends, every one of us has betrayed him. Every one of us, in a sense, is Judas. But Jesus comes to wash your feet. He comes to say, I love you still, and I died for you. Love is hard because of self-centeredness, non-commitment, because of judgment. Here's a fourth thing. Love is hard because of insecurity, fear, the need to prove something in the world. Now, you know, I've been involved in church life for a long time. And uh, one of the things that I've seen consistently over the years is that for a lot of people, the difficulty to love others and to feel part of a church family, part of a community, and you may identify with this even if you've never been part of church, because this is universal. It's not that at root you're a particularly angry or bitter or hateful person. The simple reason why we find it hard to love and to, and to receive love is because we're so wrapped up in our fears and our insecurities some of you even coming through these doors this morning, whether it's the first time or the 50th time, you're gripped by an anxiety, by the voices in your head, by wondering who you can talk to or who will talk to you. Seeing a crowd over there laughing and joking and thinking, I can't be part of them. The danger with these fears, these anxieties, is that they're so crippling. They're so destructive of love. I've seen without fail that the people who are most likely when they come to church to complain of a church's unfriendliness or, or uh, clickiness or whatever are usually people who are most fearful, most wrapped up in themselves even. Now, I want to say this gently because, friends, you know, I understand this. You've got to realize that from being a young child, I always have struggled with shyness. Part of my, my makeup, my nature. I don't, it's not natural for me to love others uh, in a way that's selfless because, yeah, I have those voices go through my head. But one of the things that helped me was when I started to realize that, okay, if I'm called to love people and if I'm failing to love people, then clearly there's a sin at work somewhere here. It's not just that I'm a victim or it's not just that I need healing or it's not just whatever. It's that I am somehow indulging a sin here that I need to kill. It might be pride. You know, when you're stood in a room thinking about how, what people think of you, don't you realize what a prideful mentality that is, that you're putting yourself at the center of your existence? To love others the way Jesus loves requires a selfless desire to think about the other before you even think about yourself. You don't have time for those conversations to be spinning around in your mind because you're not even thinking about yourself anymore. And you look at Jesus here. I love this. Verse 3. It's one of the most striking things. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, took a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he began to wash their feet. Can you see what John's doing there? Why does he tell us that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he'd come from God, that he was going back to God? Why does he say that? Because he wants you to understand that Jesus is not doing this act 
because he thinks lowly of himself in some pitiful, self-abasing way. He doesn't have any self-loathing. Jesus has a calm, profound sense of confidence and identity as the Son of God. He knows where he's come from. He knows where he's going back to. And he knows that he has all authority in the universe, which means he has nothing to lose and nothing to prove. And in that moment of total security in the Father's love, Jesus can do the humblest thing by going and washing the grimy feet of these grubby men. We find love hard because we're wrapped up in ourselves, don't we? Jesus loves with a perfect security and a calm confidence. How beautiful is his spirit. Here's the last thing. We find love hard because of pride and hierarchy. Whether you've realized it or not, much of your day-to-day life revolves around comparison and competition. Comparing results, comparing looks, comparing sense of humor, comparing intelligence, comparing dress sense, comparing popularity, comparing and competing all day long. We do it, don't we? Always marking ourselves on a, a kind of mental hierarchy in terms of our social context. Do you know, in the New Testament, there's only one command that I'm aware of that ever calls us towards competitiveness with one another. Do you know what it is? It's in Romans 12 when Paul says, outdo one another, so you're allowed to compete, he says, in showing honor to others. In other words, the only way that you're called as Christians to compete with one another is by engaging in a race to the bottom. A race in which you want to honor other people before yourself in humility. A race in which you're not trying to take the highest place, but you're trying to take the lowest place. Can you imagine what a community looks like when everyone does that? How loved everyone is. How their needs are met. How special people feel. Not because they're sat there lapping it up from others, but because everyone is giving it in grace, that love, that honor towards the other. And that is what Jesus did when he demonstrated this for us by washing the disciples' feet. How it says he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, tied it around his waist, and he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You have to understand, friends, that in the law at the time, the Jewish law at the time, you were not even permitted to force your slave to wash your feet. It's got something to do with the Middle Eastern mentality about feet. I'm no great fan of feet. But somehow Middle Easterners take that to an extreme. Do you remember when, um, the, the, when Iraq, when Saddam Hussein f- uh, was defeated by uh, the American armies and the, uni- the uh, Allied armies in, in Iraq, and how when his statue was being pulled down by the Iraqis, they took off their shoes and started whacking his, his image with the soles of their shoes. Now, it's the equivalent in Middle Eastern understanding of putting your middle finger up to somebody. Because your feet, I, I don't really know why, I guess they're just lonely part of your body. So when Jesus decides he's going to wash his disciples' feet, he's going to get in there with those fungal nails and the, 
dirt underneath the toenails and the, you know, just avoid the verrucas and the, the grime. You know, when people walk around without, without Nikes on, they've just got these sandals on all day long, the thick skin and then the dirt that gets embedded in the cracks of the skin. You've seen that? Jesus gets down there and he starts washing and scrubbing and drying. Because Jesus is not concerned about hierarchy, about comparison, about competition. He wants to demonstrate that love is a heart poured out towards others in humility. Friends, what I hope you can see in all that I've tried to show you about the love of Christ is not just that love is difficult, but that love is actually impossible. To love like Jesus loves. How on earth can we love like him? Which brings me to the third thing, that love is impossible without the gospel. You know, at the end of this story, Jesus does actually expect the disciples to go away and love each other the way he's loved them. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you should do just as I've done to you. As you go on reading through the next chapters in John's gospel, as this this evening meal progresses, one of the things he keeps reiterating is that love has to be at the center of his community, the church. So Jesus has a very high expectation of what the church is called to be and do. We're meant to model the love of Christ. But as I meditate on what Christ's love looks like, I realize how profoundly difficult, even impossible it is. Why? How can we love like Jesus? And I think the answer is that you can only love like Christ when you've received and experienced the love of Christ poured into your life first. I've read that children who suffer the worst kinds of neglect in growing up will not only be emotionally damaged, and all of us to some extent are damaged in some way, aren't we? But children who suffer neglect can be damaged very profoundly at an emotional, spiritual level. But do you know, they can even be stunted in their growth at a biological or physical level. It doesn't matter if they've had all the nutrients they need. A child who suffers neglect of human contact and love and affection and engagement, and conversation, will not grow as tall, will not be as strong, will not be as healthy, and will not even have as big a brain. And in that, the tragic reality, what many people experience, I think we have a picture of what it looks like to be a person who's never experienced the love of God in your life. You can never really love others or be all that you were created to be to flourish as a human until you have opened your heart to the love of Jesus. That's how we grow up in his love. We're not driven to this kind of love by a slave master behind us with a whip. We're compelled to this kind of love by the experience of Christ's love being lavished upon us in his grace. When you hear Stephanie's testimony in a few minutes, you're going to hear about the love of God in her life and how it's changed her. Two obstacles to that love, to you experiencing and receiving it, 
come through in the little conversation between Jesus and Peter. Peter is pretty shocked that Jesus is washing his feet for the reasons I've already described to you. Do you see how he says in verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. This is the first obstacle. It's the refusal to receive the love of God. You have to understand that what Jesus was doing was a symbolic act. By washing his deaf feet, he was trying to communicate to them what he was about to do on the cross, that he was going to wash their spirits by his blood being poured out. He was going to cleanse them by dying on the cross. Which explains why Jesus' answered to him in the next line is, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. In other words, you're not part of my family. You have to let me wash you in order for you to be part of my family. One of the reasons why some of you have never experienced the love of God in your life is because in your pride, like Peter, you have refused to recognize that you need Christ to wash you. The death of Christ on the cross is a statement that Jesus has done everything for you and you can add nothing to this. That's the message in the heart of Christianity. We're not called Christians so that we can clean up our lives to be acceptable to God. To be a Christian is to open your hands and lay your heart bare and say, I cannot cleanse myself. God, I need Jesus to cleanse me. So let him wash your feet. It's only when you take that step, and it's a humbling step, that you can experience the love of God lavished upon your heart. That's one obstacle, people who have refused the love of God. But here's the next one, and it comes over in the dialogue as it carries on between Peter and Jesus. It's the inability to accept, even if you are a Christian, that the work of Jesus is finished, that he's done it all for you. Do you see how Peter says to him, in answer, he then goes on in verse 9, he says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. I don't know what Peter has in mind here. He's always a bit rash. He's always a little bit confused when Jesus is teaching. It's one of the authentic marks that the gospel stories are true because the disciples always look like idiots. And here he is. You know, they wrote them and, and they made themselves look stupid. And here he is saying, you know, I want you to give me a shower, Jesus. Like, what, what is he talking about? And Jesus' answer is so profoundly important for you, especially if you're a Christian. He says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. But not every one of you, so referring to Judas there. You are clean. What Jesus is trying to communicate to Peter is that his, his work on the cross, what he would do for us on the cross, would be a final and complete work. Now, a lot of Christians struggle. When you become a Christian, you experience something of the love of God, but then you can struggle in a pattern of constant guilt and condemnation and feeling like you are nothing, that you're worthless, and that you, you need God to constantly be at work in you to cleanse you even more. It's like a kind of spiritual OCD. You know how if you have that obsessive compulsive desire to wash some people shower seven times a day or wash their hands repeatedly because they never feel clean. And for some Christians, it can be a bit like that. They can't accept that Jesus has washed them. They're like, wash my head, wash my hands. And Jesus says, no, once is enough. Now, this is the heart of what Christians believe. Do you know when the Buddha died, 
His final words, three words, strive without ceasing. Three words that encapsulate every religion that isn't Christianity. Strive without ceasing. Never stop working. Because you'll never know that you're acceptable unless you work harder. Do you remember what Jesus' three words were when he died on the cross just hours after this meal had taken place? It is finished. The Christian message is not strive without ceasing. It's not wash my head and my hands as well. It's I've done it once and once is enough. When I went to the cross for you, I took all of your sin upon myself. Past sin, present sin, the sins that you are yet to commit. And I, they were nailed with me on the cross. I broke, my body was broken on your behalf. My blood was poured out to make you clean. Friends, In a few minutes, we're going to witness Stephanie being baptized. What a precious moment that is. But you must understand that the baptism is in many ways symbolic. Because it points back to what Jesus achieved once for all when he went to the cross. It's not that Stephanie needs the baptism in order to be clean. It's rather that she's been baptized because she's already been made clean. Christ has washed you if you belong to him. If you're a Christian and you're wrestling with those cycles of guilt, get rid of them. You don't need them. Jesus has washed you. But if you're not a Christian, friends, I want to invite you. You can be part of this family. You can experience the love of Christ. And you can have a heart that can be transformed by this love so that you can learn to love like Jesus loves. Amen? Amen. Amen.